You are listening to an American Theater podcast. American Theater is a publication of Theater Communications Group. www.americantheater.org. Hello and welcome to Token Theater, friends. I'm Deep Tran, an editor at American Theater Magazine, and I'm here with my friend Jose. Say hello, Jose. Hi, Deep and listeners. Wait, what's your name? What's your full name? <laughs> my name is Jose Solis. I'm a freelance theater critic. And the September fall season in New York City has is up and running. How many shows are you seeing this week? Oh, you don't, you don't want to know. How many? You don't want to know. Tell, tell, tell the listeners. Well, I Give mean, us an insight uh, into your life as a theater critic. Nine. Nine? Wait, there, how many of those are two show days? Mm, Saturday and Sunday. Yeah. And do you review all of them, Jose? God, no, I would go crazy. <laughs> like, my hands would fall off. But I did I tell you about my weekend at the theater I had a marathon weekend this uh, past weekend. Like I saw three shows. Wow! Yeah, I think that's how I got sick. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 it, it was very damp on Saturday. So, yeah. what were the three shows you saw? I went all the way to Brooklyn for Remnant. Mm-hmm. Then I came back into the city for Collective Rage. Mm-hmm. And then after that was done, I went to see Forced Entertainment's and on the Thousandth Night at NYU Skirball. And that went on from 11.59 p.m. through 6 in the morning. Why? Who does that? Forced Entertainment did it. <laughs> that, is, that is forced entertainment. Because <laughs> they're forcing you to stay awake. Like, I had a 17-hour theater day, basically. Was the overnight worth it? Do you remember anything? It was so good. Yeah. It's, yeah? I didn't fall asleep. I didn't take naps. I only took two bathroom breaks. But I had way too many espressos and Red Bulls. Yeah. yeah. Like I told my friend about it, and he he was like, "What show are you seeing?" And I sh- I showed him a link, and he was like, "This sounds like white people nonsense." And I was like, "Well, it was actually it was actually pretty great. So if you ever have a chance to see anything by Forced Entertainment, I highly recommend it. Yeah. If you have the bladder, you know, the bla- bladder endurance to go with it. Well, you can leave and go to the bathroom. Oh yeah, of yeah, course. Yeah, of course. It's kind of like Taylor Max 24 decade history thing oh, where yeah. you it's 24 hours but you can leave whenever. Yeah, but also like make sure to bring like one of those travel pillows for your neck and mm-hmm. also try to like do something about your ass cuz like I could not feel my butt cheeks at 6 in the morning. I couldn't feel them. I thought I was like what's going on? For like half an hour I couldn't feel my butt cheeks. So yeah, that's that's also what happens when you sit on a plane for a really long time. That, that's why you got to walk around and know, right? take take breaks. Like, can people get up and like walk around while they're doing the show? Oh, the performers? N- no, can the audience? Oh, the audience can. Yeah, like everyone was like going in and out and in and out. Like people mm-hmm. were like sitting. Some people were like standing. Some people were like walking. Yeah, the one time you can sit in, in an audience. I mean, stand in an audience, and no one's going to give you shit for it. No. Nice. Nice. I love a good endurance piece, but <laughs> definitely endurance theater is one of those things where I I know Skirball is doing Gats again, that six-hour Great Gatsby from uh, Elevated Repair Service, and I've been debating whether or not I want, I want to do it again. And I feel like endurance is one of those things where it's fine if you did it once. 
and you don't really the repeat of an endurance performance, the value does not increase the second time you do it. Unless they're doing it in different parts of the world. Or you mean for you? No, like, do I want to see six hours again? Oh, no, if you've seen it already, I don't think so. Yeah. But also, you know, what, what was really interesting about it is that, uh, well, ironically, we're not even reviewing this. But uh, mm-hmm. anyway, but uh, those six hours were six hours, right? But they were much more pleasant and enlightening than the four hours of Denzel's Iceman Cometh from last season or the four hours of Jessica Lang and Long Day's Journey from like three years ago. And I was like, how is it that a show that's so simple as, as this one? It was very, very simple. What was it? It was just six, seven performers on stage wearing capes and crowns and they were trying to replicate kind of like the Arabian Nights were uh, mm. The, the uh, Scheherazade. Yes. And she tells the king stories through the night, right? Mm-hmm. So they were basically just saying, you know, beginning stories, like talking about, um, they would just start, like once upon a time, there was like, I don't know, like a, a, an umbrella. But then the, the catch was that no one was able to finish a story because then someone else would interrupt them and be like, you know, like basically it's my turn to tell the story. Yeah. And that went on for six hours. Like there was a moment where I was like, I had my timer out and in the span of 10 minutes, they started 16 different stories. So it was just, it was so creative and so funny. I mean, when you are capable as a performer to make an audience like laugh out loud five hours (laughs) into your performance at like five in the morning, you're doing something right. Well, at that point, you're just kind of exhausted, too. And I feel like when you're tired, a lot of things become funny. Yeah, you're also like very delirious. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Take some drugs that help you stay awake. Take some uppers. Lots of Red Bull. And lots of Red Bull. Amazing. Well, speaking of too much theater, what did we see this week? We saw Collective Rage playing Five Bettys at MCC Theater, Hurricane Party at the Cherry Lane Theater, and Remnant at Theater Me Too. And let's start off with Collective Rage by Jen Silverman at MCC Theater. And fun fact, this show replaced a Neela Butte show. Yay. Yay. <laughs> and you know what? I would rather see 10 of this show than like one Neela Butte play. So go MCC for programming an, a queer woman in the place of a problematic... Misogynistic. Yeah, Yeah, dude. Collective Rage is about five women, all named Betty, who are all very dissatisfied with their lives. And first, before I tell you more about Collective Rage, I want to give you, I want to read the, the complete title of Collective Rage so you can, so you can get a sense of what this play is like. Collective Rage, a play in five Bettys. In essence, a queer and occasionally hazardous exploration. Semicolon. Do you remember when you were in middle school and you read about Shackleton and how he explored the Antarctic? Imagine the Antarctic as a pussy and a sort of like that. Am I allowed to say pussy also? Yes, you can say pussy. Because they say pussy a lot. They say pussy a lot. So it's about five women, and they're all unsatisfied with their lives, and it's five women of different races and different gender orientations slash presentations, and they all get to know each other, and through knowing each other and doing a play together, they learn more about who they want to be. 
If you know nothing about this play, just know that this cast is fantastic because it is like, it's not just, it's yes, there's star power, but there's also just fierce female performances. There's Dana Delaney, there's Adina Verson of uh, Indecent, Anna Villafane of On Your Feet, Leah Delaria of Orange is the New Black, Shantae Wayans, who's a stand-up comedian and is also queer. Like, I didn't care what the heck, what play they were doing. It didn't matter. They were just so much fun to watch. And it's also, like, when you look at the cast, it doesn't make sense. Like, if you Mm -hmm. first look at it, you're like, how? How are all these people going to, you know, what is going on? But then you see the play, and it's, yeah, I agree. It's, like, one of my favorite ensemble pieces that I've seen all year long. Mm -hmm. Everyone is so freaking great. And they get to make the best use, I think, of what we already know them for, but also surprises in, you know, like, incredible ways. Like, I had no idea, for instance, I was so thrilled. I loved Ana Villafañe as Gloria Estefan in On, on Your Feet. Mm-hmm. And after that, I feel like I, after the show closed, I feel like I didn't see her for a while. And I wondered, you know, is she going to be yet another Latina actress who gets like typecast and you know you play Gloria Estefan so now you're never gonna play anyone else because we don't know what to do with you right Mm -hmm. so then to see her in a non-musical like in a straight play being so different than Gloria Estefan or that you know like it's such a bold follow-up I feel to to the musical like big musical performance and it's so so funny and so, like, you know, it sounds like a cliche, but I didn't recognize Ana Villafañe at first. It's like, who is this incredible performer? Right. And I don't think it's spoiler to say that Leah Delaria's character is in love with Ana Villafañe's character. And you can see why. I mean, weren't we all? Weren't we all? The thing is, it's interesting. Um, the, the conceit of the show is, like, all these different women are, like, different types. And, you know, like, and you see these actors and you subscribe and you prescribe, like, a certain type of character that they've played. And so they start with that and then they deepen it and morph it a little bit. And I, but I feel like in some, in some occasions it was more successful than others. I actually think Anna wasn't as successful in, like, surpassing, like, that, the Latina type. What do you think? I thought that she brought a depth to... Because, I mean, like, she was also a queer... Let, you know, like, she's presented as, like, this stereotype of a... Of a I don't know, like, oh, God, I'm using, like, all the cliche words. But mm-hmm. that's what she is shown as. Like, a sassy Latina with, like, very tight clothes and big hair. Think and ba- giant hoop earrings. Yeah. Think, like, basically every character that Hollywood wants Sofia Vergara to play. Mm-hmm. However, I feel that she didn't just rely on that. She, you know, like she, she does that incredibly well. She moves, like she commanded the stage with that, um, very Latina quality for lack of better, of a better adjective. But I did feel because the character was queer that we got to see a part of a character like that that we wouldn't really get to see. Like, and at the end of the play, I felt she was, she was very vulnerable and she was very, uh, she had changed. Mm-hmm. Maybe her arc wasn't as, you know, 
drastic as some of the others, but I I I, I do feel that she was she was she was really good. Her arc, I enjoyed her arc a lot. Mm-hmm. I actually think the person whose arc was like the most riveting to me was Shantae Wayans, <laughs> Betty's arc, and her Betty is a is a black gender non-conforming male presenting femme. Betty, who's out from rehab and likes to fix cars. And there is this wonderful monologue that she does with in front of Dana Delaria's care, Betty character. And, you know, they get together. I don't think I'm spoiling that for anyone. But, you know, you have to see the show to see how they how the play makes that one happen. And Shantae talks about, like, how she feels like a wall sometimes. And she's playing a wall in the, in the play within the play. <laughs> and how she feels like a wall and how she's built up these defenses around herself to let pe- to keep people out and to, you know, hide her vulnerability. And the whole play is about her traversing her own personal wall. And I found that actually really moving because I don't think women of color, especially black women in particular, are given the chance to be that vulnerable on stage or in any kinds of entertainment. And I hope to see Shantae in more things because this is her first theatrical production and she was awesome. Oh, wow. Yeah. I have to say also that Dana Delaney's monologue about boxing mm-hmm. explains every reason why I love boxing. Oh my God, it explains every reason why I love lifting at the gym. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I feel that was, yep. I was like, yep. If someone, when someone asks me like, what do you box? I'll be like, go, go see Collective Rage mm-hmm. and you'll get it. Yeah. Does that make us angry people? No, I think I think it makes us people that have no safe outlets for our feelings and so we have to put them we have to express them in other ways because you know when a woman expresses her feelings like when Serena expresses her, when Serena Williams expresses her feelings mm. you know during a match like she's penalized for it. So we can't be upset which unfortunately. is bonkers. Which is bonkers. I don't know how we got on that topic. Well, I mean, it ties into that. Like, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's the same about the play. Like, at first, the actors, the actresses are, seem so different from each other. And in many mm-hmm. ways, if you think about it, like, the characters that they're playing this, cause they're, they're kind of like riffing on things like Desperate Housewives and like Sex in a City and like yeah. Orange is the New Black. And all of these worlds that, for some reason, I mean, I think we all know what the reason is the fucking patriarchy. Mm-hmm. For some reason, like fiction and like Hollywood and theater and literature, everything makes us believe that this, you know, women like the ones that like the baddies from the show would never interact or could never interact in real life. Mm-hmm. And then that Jen Silverman shows us, hey, look how I can make all these people who society constantly mm-hmm. suggests shouldn't, you know, mix mm-hmm. and look what I can make happen with it. And it's fucking brilliant. Right. Right. And uh, I, I want to shout out the design elements just because I feel like we don't shout out design very often. But I really like like the set and the lighting and the sound design. Basically, most of the design elements of this, you know, good job, Dane Laffrey and Jen Shriver and Palmer Hefferan, because things fall from the ceilings. <laughs> and that always makes me happy. I'm so worried that something would fall on one of them. <laughs> There's like giant chairs falling from the ceiling and it's like move Dana Delaney move it's like we can't the theater can't kill Dana Delaney no oh my goodness 
That is Collective Rage, a play in five Bettys. It's running until October 7th, and tickets are $49 to $99. Though, if you are under 30 years old, you can rush the show for $30 two hours prior to curtain time. Go. Go. I don't know how I feel about the fact that we're talking about a show called Hurricane Party, as there's this monster of a storm about to hit South Carolina. It's very disturbing. Or very prescient. Yeah. Do you think that they programmed this show to be like... In the fall because there's going to be hurricanes in the fall. (laughs) I'm pretty sure someone said that at some point. But anyway, Anyway, what is Hurricane Party about? And is it a party, Jose? Well, it is a party. Like I feel like in terms of a title being describing what the play is about, this one's... You know, it gets like the the prize for being like the most apt and the most <laughs> accurate. In Hurricane Party by David Thickpen, we meet two couples. There's Mason and Dana, who we first see while they're having sex on the opening scene, and we're like, "Oh, look, this is so like cute, I guess." And like, should we be looking at this? And then we realize that they're having an affair. <gasps> what? Yeah. What? Because Macon... Shocker. Is, I know, right? Because Macon's actually married to Todd, who's this like big, like bear kind of a guy who's like very violent and very aggressive. Mm-hmm. And then Dana's married to a woman named Caroline who's pregnant. So we have this setup of like two couples who are, you know, like having all this like secrets and stuff. Mm-hmm. But there's also a hurricane coming. What? Yes. It's like the storm outside is no match for the storm inside <laughs> the house. <laughs> Oh my god, stop it. <laughs> and then I, I <laughs> and the couples decide that the only way to, you know, face this horrible storm is to have a party. And yeah, because they're all friends, they're all best yeah. friends. And to drink and do drugs and dance and play board games and just like do crazy stuff while the hurricane comes and goes, right? So they mm-hmm. have a party. And when you have four people with secrets and you throw them in a house that they can't leave Shed's going down. The way that I like to describe this show, it's a combination of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and Body Heat, which is one of my favorite neo-noir movies of all time. And Mm -hmm. I could feel how humid this place was just from like looking at these characters. Oh, and we have to say Maria Dizia directs this show and she's starting to direct more as she was in... If you may know her from Orange is the New Black, and she's also like she is also a fantastic actor of off Broadway, you know Belleville vibrator play, all all the great great things. She's a great actor, and she is a very skilled director. She knows how to position bodies in a space where they're doing different things, and they're telling different stories, but they still occupy like the same kind of like thematic space. So she does that very well considering a lot of stuff happens in this play. A lot of stuff. On one set. So good job, Maria. Uh, did you like this play or I, not? I don't know when. when's the last time I went to a theater and I was like entertained nonstop. Mm-hmm. I was having so much fun with this show because it's, you know, all these words that I'm about to use sound like negative words, mm-hmm. but I promise they're not. 
but it's like a very lurid, very trashy. Oh, it's so trashy. Kind of show. Yeah, it reminds me like of um, that. You remember that? No, Nicole, since we're talking about like movies, but remember, remember that Nicole Kidman, Zac Efron movie, Paperboy, where like she pees on him after he should, he gets stung by jellyfish. But it's also <laughs> set in Florida, and it's also about trashy white people. Yes. And it also has that lurid, like, soapy campiness to it. When it ended, because it has, like, that ending, it's like, whoa. You, you did not see it coming. Come on now. Well, I mean, I did, <laughs> but I also didn't. Because I was like, when it, when it was over, though, I felt like my soap opera was done for today. And I just wanted to see what was going to happen the next day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's what, I'm, that, that's what I was going to say in terms of tone, I think for what it was, it could have been, it, it, they could have ratcheted up the the campiness and the soap opera-ness of it. Because I feel like it was way too naturalistic and kind of took itself a little bit too seriously. Like, it tried to like make itself like a Tennessee Williams play when, in fact, it was the paper boy. <laughs> and they really should have embraced that aspect because if if we're, if we're grading it on the scale of like an Edward Albee or a Tennessee Williams domestic drama, like it's not there. The language isn't there. It's not poetic. And the character motivations are very, um, they're very unclear. Like I saw these characters more as a collection of tropes of of poor white people rather than like people whose motivations I understood why it is that they did, did what they did. Because I actually don't know why these people do what they do. Hmm. It actually made me, since you mentioned that, it actually made me think one of the things that I was thinking about was when we hear about, you know, things like Katrina, for instance, or all these like horrible natural disasters. And we are used to hearing about, you know, like in the, on the news, whatever, CNN, and we always get like a very broad story, you know, mm-hmm. like thousands of people died or like hundreds of people were left homeless. And I found it so interesting that in this play, we got to see the effect that a natural disaster like this has on, you know, six very specific people. And that makes them go crazy. Well, I mean, yeah, <laughs> but I, no, because I don't know. Have, have you ever have you ever been in the midst of a hurricane? I mean, which hurricane was it in 2011, New York City, where everything shut down? Sandy, it's, it's, 2012. Yeah, yeah, Sandy. Yeah, remember Sandy? Well, and like how freaked out everyone was. I got. I moved to New York the week before Sandy, so I do remember that. But but yeah, you know, like because I remember, like yeah, even like the drama of some drama of something like Sandy. I remember being new to living in New York, and then I was at an apartment building, and someone started yelling that there was a fire, and a kind of thing, and I was like. It's so fascinating how many tiny stories are also happening mm-hmm. while there's this like larger thing going on. And I kind of was very grateful to this play for reminding me about that. Cause we, I mean, I know that, you know, like in, in New York, for instance, we can be very dismissive about mm-hmm. what happens in like Republican states for lack of better sure. words. And I was, I was grateful that the play made me have empathy for characters that I would usually be just like, oh, they probably voted for. You have empathy? Oh, my God. I'm so surprised you had empathy for them. I had, like, disdain. (laughs) Oh, my God. I had a lot of empathy for them. Really? Even the racist one? I mean, yeah. 
I, I felt that if it wasn't for a play like this, I would never get to listen to people mm-hmm. like like the characters we meet. Sure. I wouldn't want to engage with them. Right. I wish I could have... My See, I actually didn't like it as much as you did. And I, and I wish like it played so much into those white trash tropes that I didn't find it illuminating of those people. Like it, it, it wasn't like Sweat by Lynn Nottage, which is also about poor white people. But so I feel like we there could have there could have been a better play there and it needs like another draft because I do like the fact that there's a hurricane outside which means it forces them to stay in the house because so many times in drama like these characters just stay in the house even though they can just leave and the entire time I'm watching who's afraid of Virginia Woolf I'm just like people why don't you just leave Go this home. couple is crazy <laughs> so it's nice that you know climate change has given us good be good fodder for drama, so that people can can't leave. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Thank you, climate change. Thank you, global warming. <laughs> Hurricane party runs through October 7th and tickets are 41 to $81. We tried to find any cheap ticket options and we couldn't find them. But if you find them, good for you. Go take those deals. Let us know. Let us know. Okay, final show that we're talking about is Remnant from Theater Me Too, currently running in Gowanus, Brooklyn. And I, I, I've actually heard of Theater Me Too over, over the years, but I, I never seen any, any of their work. And they're a 21-year-old experimental theater company. And for this production, which took a few years, they've been interviewing military personnel, people who've been affected by war, people diagnosed with terminal illnesses, to talk about death and people's anxieties about death and what we leave after we die and what they've created was the 75 minute installation where you you, okay so you as the audience you go in and you see that there's three different like mini sets and you sit down in front of each of the mini set and you put on a pair of headphones and for 20 minutes the thing in front of you is playing the action's happening, and then it ends in 20 minutes, and then you go over to the next one. So all three sets do the same thing three times, and you as the audience rotate between all three in 75 minutes. What order did you do them in? Um, I was in... I was. I went from three to one to two. How about you? I don't remember the... Wait, now I'm confused. Okay, three was the hospital one. Number one was a radio show, and yeah. number two was the um, the veteran, the yeah. war veteran. So I went from two to three to one. Okay. Yeah. Granted, I don't really think it affects your understanding of the piece, because I think each piece stands by itself, and it's really just, it's not so much a linear narrative as it is a rumination from different vantage points about death and what happens when we die. And... How time can slow down when you're watching the person you love, you know, being in in pain or on on their deathbed and all of those really sad things, which is prescient for me because lately I've been thinking a lot about death. But you're so young. I mean, I I shouldn't be saying that. Like, I think about death constantly. Yeah, don't we all, though? Yeah. 
I mean, the people who say they don't are lying, I think. Exactly. We all live with it in the back of our minds. Yeah. And so I appreciate a theater piece grappling with the questions, even if I don't actually really think... I, I feel like the lack of coherency between the three pieces, actually, it was actually detrimental to the piece. Because mm-hmm. I really don't... I feel, feel like, for me, it didn't feel like it coalesced into a whole that I could leave with having been enriched in some way. It was more like, here's all of your anxieties, Deep. Have fun with that for 75 <laughs> minutes. And now you can just go off and go home to your cat. <laughs> oh, my God. I am dying over here. Um, <laughs> no pun intended. Um, Not literally yet. You, that, that you know of, listeners. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. We're all dying. But that's so sad. That you were so anxious. Because, like, I I feel... I didn't feel anxious. Like, in fact, does it make sense to say that I left Remnant, like, slightly exhilarated? Really? Yeah. Because you know you're going to die and you want to... There's no day but today, like in Rent? No, it's even probably cornier than that. I left it exhilarated because I was like, well, you know, in a way, Hurricane Party is also about this, right? About we're all going to die... So let's all drink and have sex and do drugs and be horrible to each other because like a hurricane's gonna come kill us all, right? So in a way, I feel like that's a very appropriate uh, kind of metaphor for life itself. Like we should just enjoy it because like something's gonna happen to us and we're gonna be gone tomorrow or whatever, right? So after Remnant, I left the theater exhilarated because I was in such awe that this artist had put together something so, you know, thoughtful and illuminating at times. And I was like, wow, it's so cool to be alive and get to experience things like this. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I loved the craft of it. Like the whole sitting down and being immersed in the headphones. And it was like listening to like, you know, those XLR um, YouTube videos where they just, just do different stuff in front of an XLR microphone. Like there was a satisfaction of hearing someone's voice like really deep in your ear whispering about death. So I lo- yeah. I love like video installations, like art installations like this. It's just more like when it touches like a subject and I want to learn more, know more about the subject and it doesn't do that, then it is kind of disappointing. But, you know, I guess, I guess art installation, what are you going to do, right? Did you see Manifesto at the Armory in 2016? No, the Kate Blanchett thing? Yeah. Because like that one in terms of uh, the uh, the craft and all of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, basically, if you if you don't know... What it was, it was this massive installation where they had, I don't remember, I think it was like 10 or so short films, all starring Kate Blanchett, playing different mm-hmm, characters. Mm-hmm. And then at the Armory, they had 10 individual um, screens and they were giant. Like It was mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. I called it like the Kate Blanchett multiplex. And you could go from scene to scene to scene to scene and watch a different story unfold but there was there were moments there was one moment where all the screens would synchronize mm. like all the stories would synchronize at this at the exact same time and you would just hear this like you know this like robotic sound fill the entire armory and when you get to do that with something like film i feel it's you know like again like it's impressive 
Mm-hmm. But when you do that on film, it's easier to control. I feel. Yeah. But getting to see the 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 artists. Oh yeah. And Bramman achieve that when there were moments where the three booths would be synced. Yeah. Yes. I was like, they did it three did times. They, yeah. I know how they do that. And then like you see, you know, like when I was like on the on the booth at the far right, and there was a moment where it synced with the booth in the middle, which had been the first one that I had experienced. Yeah. yeah. And I was like. When when I was like looking at the first at the middle booth, I didn't even notice that they were like trying to sync with the other ones. Mm-hmm. But when I got to the third one and I saw it sync with the second, I was like, "Holy shit, this is incredible!" Mm-hmm. So bravo to Ruben Polendo for this direction because it's oh, it's so good. Yeah, and and bravo to Alex Hawthorne for the, the sound design. Yes, because that was very soothing. Gotta say, uh, what, what do we think the music added to it? I thought the music because they have very original songs. It was like it had a very like I I love like I'm ter- I'm both terrified and fascinated by ghosts. Mm-hmm. So I felt that in many ways, each of the booths was also like different spirits like interacting with each other. So I feel like the music added just like another like kind of like melancholy spirit in a way. Mm-hmm. Like I just felt like the songs were ways for people to communicate from the afterlife oh i just thought the songs were ways to help people live and cope with the fact that we're all gonna die oh god this is a dark episode because <laughs> <laughs> i know when i'm sad i like i put on some really i put on some music that matches my mood and i just like curl up in a ball on my carpet <laughs> stop listening to adele <laughs> and play some carly ray jepson by all means <laughs> I'm not sad right now, but like music is music is soothing, therapeutic. I think like music is one of those things that it, it, it reminds us to we're all going to die and to not waste life and just enjoy the beauty of it. Anyway, if you also want to think about your own mortality, <laughs> Remnant is running through September 21st and tickets are 15 to $25. So I would fucking pay for that and pay for Collective Rage because both are great and I could afford both of them. Yay! But let me tell you, maybe the most life-affirming thing about Remnant. What? I saw it with a group of first-year college students (gasps) who had never seen a show that wasn't like a a traditional preceding Mm -hmm. show. Did they love it? Yes. Yay! So maybe that's why I left the show like happy. Because I was like, I'm surrounded by youth. <laughs> yes, you're, you're sucking their youthful energy. <laughs> what would you pay for? I would give Ana Villafane all my money. So, Collective Rage. Yeah. So much fun. Yes, go see Collective Rage. Or go see any of these shows. If, yeah. Yeah, if you're, you're so inclined. Our interview for this week does not talk about death. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> She is a happy-go-lucky person. Who is it, Jose? It's Tony nominee and Trauma Desk Award winner, Laura Osnes, who's like, yeah, she's like the sun. So Mm -hmm. listen to what Laura had to say and forget about all our morbid death talk. Yeah, Laura talks about Disney princesses with us because she's hosting a Disney princess party around the country. Find out more after you hear a clip. It's possible for a plain country bumpkin and a prince to join in marriage and so white mice are easily turned to horses. Such fold are all in fiddly gay of courses. 
and I a little bit about this concert series that you've been doing around the country this summer. Um, awesome. Uh, well, it started as... Um, an idea at one of my dear friends, Ben Rauhala, he's our music director for the concert, um, asked me at his birthday party if I would get involved with this idea that he had um, to do a princess concert with princess songs. And he said, I would love for you to be in it and maybe like host it with me. Um, are you game? And within a couple hours, I had created this spreadsheet of headshots of all of our girlfriends next to pictures of what princess I wanted them to sing and portray for the concert. And that was the brainstorm of where it all began. And we did our first concert about six months later in New York City and were so thrilled and surprised and elated by the response that it got. Um, it was this just beautiful thing for the audiences who came were losing their minds and absolutely loved it because they were seeing all of their favorite Broadway, you know, ingenues singing these iconic songs that I think everybody has some sort of connection to, as well as for the girls, for the cast involved, it was this really neat opportunity to support each other and be really inspired and blown away by each other when oftentimes we're competing against each other. And that night it was really this beautiful celebratory atmosphere of um, support and strong females and amazing talent that was really, really special. So we knew we had something kind of magical on our hands and it's now been three and three years. We just had our, our third birthday, Broadway Princess Party. And because of the demand, we've just been able to take it beyond New York City. Are, are you finding you're adding to your repertoire all the time because of the new Disney movies coming out? Yeah. There's such a vast canon of music to be explored, which is what we figured. We figured that out at 54 Below over a course of two and a half years. We didn't want to keep giving people the same show, and we had different girls involved, and so that was great. With this now, because we're touring to different cities, we are able to keep the show relatively consistent because it's a different audience all the time. We're, we're bringing the show to them. Um, but we just added two new songs, and we're, um, or three new songs in our last concert, and we have different guest princes, um, which sometimes allows for different songs to be incorporated in. And then we're also in the works about talking about a holiday program and touring this this coming holiday season. So as the like ultimate Broadway princess, we thought it would be fun to uh, play a little game with you. I love so, games. <laughs> so I am going to read you some lyrics, and you have to tell me if they're from a song by a princess or a song by Prince. Oh, okay. Okay. Oh, I hope I'm good at this. <laughs> I'm a little nervous. Ready for the first one? Can't wait, yes. Okay, let's do it. But people, I guess, can live like that. We all must pay a price. To be safe, we lose our chance of ever knowing. That is Pocahontas, so she is the princess. Amazing, Not yes. Not a prince. Correct. Yes. Okay, great. In the past few years, I feel like there's been this change in conversation around princesses. So now it, the question is... How do how can we make princesses more empowering so it's not just a traditional like very gender heteronormative role for women? Absolutely, um, making these princesses relevant, I think, is something we really do want to tap into. That, it, that we're not they're not just damsels in distress looking for love, and in fact, even Ariel. I mean, way back when, I mean, her song is about 
is about expand part of your world is about expanding beyond her normal life belt wanting more than that provincial life they're not just about finding love so i feel like a lot of people just equate it with that when really disney i feel like was ahead of the game starting you know in the 80s and 90s when I was a child. <laughs> At our Rodgers and Hammerstein Cinderella on Broadway, we rewrote the script, not we, Douglas Carter Bean rewrote the script um, to make Cinderella losing her shoe a choice. She leaves her shoe on purpose so that the prince will find her as opposed to, oh, I lost my shoe and I'm running away. And then at the end, she she makes the point to be like, I haven't tried on the slipper. And it's all her decision. She's deciding her own fate. And in fact, she challenges the prince um, who to step up into the role that he needs to fulfill because he's afraid to be a leader and you know not quite up for that challenge and she's the one who inspires him to do so. So I feel like that was a really cool way to to I mean make that iconic princess that everyone kind of has in their brain feel very relevant. Um, she was also very into politics <laughs> and um, she had a huge imagination, which I feel like there are still qualities like grace and kindness and forgiveness and things like that that were also emphasized in the show that will be timeless, I think, princess characteristics. Gadgets and gizmos are plenty. I've got who's it and what's it go for. You want thingamabobs? I've got 20. But who cares? No big deal. I want more. Second question? Yes, I'm ready. Okay. How can you just leave me standing alone in a world that's so cold? Oh, because I don't know this one. Which is shocking. I'm embarrassed and sad that I don't know it. I might say Prince because I don't know it. Maybe you found a... What is it? And you're correct. Yes. It's from When Doves Cry. When Doves Cry. Mm. Nice. <laughs> so you, you became famous by being on Grease. <laughs> you're the one that I want. You know, I mean, back when being famous was being on television. And so now that being... It's easier. I feel like it's easier to be famous now because everyone can have an internet persona. And so, well, what, what do you think about the changing nature of like how people get notoriety these days? It's so interesting. Um, the whole idea of fame. Like, I don't consider myself like famous. Do you know what I mean? It's so weird. I'm like, I'm just a normal person living my with, dream with a hundred thousand <laughs> Instagram followers. But like, there are people. It's not like Taylor Swift levels. You know what I'm saying? Um, but yeah, I feel very fortunate actually that I did the reality show thing in 2007 that really put me on the map. Um, you know, nowadays. I feel like the TV exposure is still phenomenal exposure, but at the time it was before Instagram, like it was before all these things. So, um, it was a really kind of incredible way to kind of launch my career. And I had always dreamed of being on Broadway. I knew that's what I wanted to do, but that like put me on the map and made my dream come true in a matter of like three months. I had won this contest and was guaranteed a year long run playing a lead in a Broadway show, which was a insane gift that doesn't happen to people. <laughs> um, so I am super grateful for that. It was a very stressful, weird situation. In fact, at the time, like we weren't allowed to really post about it, even on Facebook, which did exist. Mm -hmm. Um, we kind of had to keep everything under wraps. And I feel like nowadays with reality TV, I don't know how they do it. Like I'm, I just feel like it would be overwhelming and I'm almost grateful that 
it was overwhelming enough without all of that, and I can't imagine nowadays having to do that. Okay, Laura, you already won because we only have three questions. But if you want to go three for three, shall we? Yes. Okay. So, <laughs> someday we'll say and do things we've been longing to. Though he's far away, I'll find my love someday. I feel like it's um, it, the the lyric is though he's far away, so it makes me think that it's princess. And I know I've heard that, but I'm not placing it immediately. It's not Thumbelina, is it? It's not. So you're gonna. Go I'm with... saying princess. Oh, okay. Well, you're you're right. You're... Oh, good. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> it's the lyrics from uh, "Someday My Prince Will Come." Oh my gosh! But it's the extra lyrics that. Only Barbara sings usually. So, Whoa, you oh, that was like bonus. So yeah, you, oh. you aced it, and you are our winner. So Yay! you ready for a prize? Thanks. We got you a TCG tote bag, and inside is my favorite princess of all time, and I want you to have <gasps> one. Yes, <laughs> you guys, this is phenomenal. <laughs> Amazing, Wonder Woman. Look at her beautiful toga. What do you think a Wonder Woman <gasps> musical would sound like? Let's make it happen. Oh, <laughs> yes. who would write that? Probably like Pasek and Paul. I feel like it has to be a little contemporary. It can't quite be like Rodgers and Hammerstein, Wonder Woman. Not that they're alive to write. In the <laughs> anyway. But like, I feel like it's got to be kind of like driving and like exciting and like epic. Like it would be like greatest showman You know what I mean? Oh, I love. Thank you guys so much. What You're a very treasure. welcome. <laughs> Uh, Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Like we are so looking forward to the next uh, Broadway Princess Party. Thank you, guys. And would you like to invite our viewers all over the country? Let us know where you're going to be next. Yes, we have um, dates September 14th. We're going to be in Boston um, at the Berkeley Performing Arts Berkeley Center for Berkeley Performing Arts Center, and then September 15th, we're here in New Jersey at NJ Pack, and then um, the 16th, we are going to Cincinnati, Ohio, um, playing the Liberty Funny Bone, and then. And we have a bunch of dates we're looking to book soon, so definitely follow along um, at broadwayprincessparty.com. And then we have a few in October. We're going to go to Houston and Columbus, Ohio. And then in G- we have dates all the way in January in Texas, Nebraska, and Washington. So we're super excited, but more, more to be announced soon. Awesome. Thank you, Laura. Come. Come see us. Come join the party. <laughs> Bring your best tiara. Yes. And you will never hear the wolf cry to the blue-horned moon. For whether we are white or copper-skinned, we need to sing with all the voices of the mountain. We need to paint with all the colors of the I hope you enjoyed that interview with Laura, Jose, which Disney princess did you used to dress up as when you, when you were a little girl? I used to grab a towel and I would pretend I was Pocahontas. Hells yeah. But also, I remember this. Like, I, used to, I used to love taking baths when I was a little kid. And when I was six or so, I would uh, pretend I was Princess Jasmine <gasps> did- in the bath. <laughs> a whole new world. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, I used to be Cinderella. And then, actually, my first princess 
costume I ever got was Snow White, so I was her for a couple years because she was the only one who kind of looked like me. She had dark hair, but but I related more to Cinderella because Cinderella is invisible, and I also felt invisible as a little Asian, and and then but it kept me it kept me hopeful that one day I will have a fairy godmother. Anyway, so for today's rant, 11 o'clock number, where we mouth off about one a certain topic, what are we talking about? Movies being turned into shows. Are they good? Or are they just an, an indicator that Broadway's turning into Disney and they're just trying to get all of our monies and there's no good ideas left? Let's discuss. So recently... Pretty Woman opened on Broadway based on the Julia Roberts movie, and they just announced that Mrs. Doubtfire, the musical, will be opening on Broadway soon. And you know what? There's a lot of movies to musicals adaptations. Like, let's like name off the top of our heads. Let's let's just name some. You know. Tootsie's coming up in the spring. Mm-hmm. Moulin Rouge is coming in the spring. Yep. The band's visit was based on a in- little indie movie. Mm-hmm. Uh. Oh my god! Hairspray was based on a movie. The Lion King, all the Disney, <laughs> all ones. the Disney's. Speaking of Disney, <laughs> Kinky Boots, Kinky Boots, Groundhog Day, Rocky, basically Rocky, everything. Yeah. Andy Carlson, yeah. Andy Carl needs better projects. He's always great in all the shows. Yeah, he just needs better projects. An original one. He was in Legally Blonde, which is also based mm-hmm, on a movie. Mm-hmm. There was a Bring It On musical. Mm-hmm. Mm, Heather's. Mm-hmm. Mean Girls. Mm-hmm. There's so many, and they all vary in quality. What I wanted to talk about was like what makes a good movie adaptation, movie to musical adaptation, versus a bad movie to musical adaptation. There, there's some movie to musical adaptations I love. Like I love the band's visit. And I think the key to a good movie to musical adaptation is like twofold. I think one, like you really need to have a good composer who can write catchy songs that makes the audience forget that this used to be a, a movie. Like Waitress is one that is one of my favorite recent movie to musical adaptations because Sarah Bareilles is the score by Sarah Bareilles. It stands on its own and it adds like an, arti- an additional artistic edge to what would have been like a straight, you know, movie to musical adaptation of a very simple story. What do you think? Well, I I slightly uh, disagree oh. with making you forget about the movie. Okay. Because in many ways, you know, I feel that in many cases, I love a movie to stage uh, transfer because it reminds me of how much I love the movie oh. while adding something to it. For instance, with Waitress, like, I cannot stand the Waitress movie. I love the Waitress movie. Maybe I, that's why you like the movie. Mm. Like, I found it so to be so precious and so, like, ugh. But the musical, I adored. So that was, like, a case where it's, like, the opposite. Where it's, like, ugh, like, this movie's, like, ugh. But then the musical I love. And, like, with The Bad's mm-hmm. Visit, the movie's incredible. I saw it when it came out in 2007. And it was one of those things where I, where I heard, like, they're, turning it into a musical and I was like huh and then it worked in such like wondrous ways because it it does that thing where like it reminded me of scenes from the movie that I love to death while adding something else like David Yaspik's score yeah was just like 
gorgeous. And Katrina Lang's performance. Yes. And he also did the same thing with uh, the Full Monty and mm -hmm. Women on the Verge of a Bre Nervous Breakdown. Yasbeck is so bold in how he will grab very uh, unique movies. Because like, things like Almodovar or The Band's Visit are things yes. that you're like, this is never going to work as a commercial enterprise. But then he finds the way in and... And he's I, also a good composer, too. Yeah. That helps. Like, knowing how to write good songs... <laughs> Always helps. House, you know, and <laughs> Mean Girls, which <laughs> the score is, oh my God, it's such a forgettable score. It is very forgettable. But it's like, then we are, we have like a different case where we have mm -hmm. like something like Pretty Women, which is pretty much a carbon copy of the movie with very forgettable songs. Mm -hmm. And then I was sitting there watching it and I was like, why am I getting an exact copy of the movie? Were I mean, they know they're never going to be able to capture the magic that was Julia Roberts mm -hmm. and that. And it's unfair for the actors in the show because they're never going to be able to live up to what people already love. Yeah. And it's also unfair to audiences because, you know, like if I wanted a copy of Pretty Women, I would just like rent watch Pretty my Woman. copy of Pretty Women at home. And it's cheaper to rent Pretty Woman than to watch it on Broadway with very forgettable songs. And you can't even buy it. Like the DVD is like four ninety nine always. Yeah. Like, one of my theories is that, like, for, like, these iconic movies like Pretty Woman and Mrs. Doubtfire, like, I feel like most part of why they're iconic is because of the performances of those actors. Mm -hmm. Like, you can't replicate J Julia Roberts or Robin Williams. If you cast anyone else, like, it would have been a completely different movie and probably had a completely different reception. Yes. And probably we would have spotted the problematic elements a lot sooner. But, like... Those movies depends on the charm of those performers. And like when you take something iconic and try to replicate it, it's like doing a remake of an iconic movie. Like no one remakes Casablanca. There's only one. And if you're trying to remake an iconic property, then like you really need to figure out like what else you can add to it. Otherwise, the audience will always just think, oh, this isn't as good as the movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But also, I feel like a big part of the problem with this is that marketing for original productions, they're just not doing their job. Because oh, yeah. people go to see, you know, Pretty Women, the musical, because they know the property and mm -hmm. they know Waitress. Well, I mean, Waitress isn't that famous. Not really. No one knew what Waitress was. But they know Pretty Women. They probably will know Mrs. Statfire. They mm -hmm. definitely know Tootsie, which Ugh, like won God. like Oscars and stuff. They know, you know, they know School of Rock. So mm -hmm. I feel like if you know that you have to pay over $100, like sometimes up to like $250 for a ticket, you don't want to risk it on something that you know nothing about. Mm -hmm. And maybe, you know, marketing for these productions, things like Head Over Heels, for instance, which breaks my heart that it's not doing well at the box office because it's so refreshing and mm -hmm. so much fun and mm -hmm. so original. Yeah. But people don't know what, it, what it's about. Yeah, people don't ha have no idea. Like, why would they pay a hundred bucks to go see this when they could just pay two hundred and go see Pretty Women? But they know what they're getting into. If you're listening to this and you have thoughts on what makes a good movie to musical adaptation, just let us know. Tweet at us or send us an email because you know what? There's only going to be more of them because it's only getting more expensive to produce on Broadway. So if we're going to have to be subjected to this, I would like them to at least be good. And I would like producers to know how to make them good. So send us tips or 
just go buy tickets to be more chill and support original songwriting on Broadway because otherwise we're not going to get much more of those. <laughs> Can you imagine when we get the day after tomorrow the musical? <laughs> I want Crazy Rich Asians the musical. Oh, that was going to be cute. Yeah, is that happening? No, it should be happening. Constance Wu tweeted at me and and told me she sang on Fresh Off the Boat. So totally, ha- so totally possible. Oh, totally possible. What about like? Tornado the musical or like volcano do you remember <laughs> Armageddon the musical I don't want to close my yeah. eyes with the score by Aerosmith I mean I would I would go see that oh I would totally go see that <laughs> and on that note thank you all for listening to this episode if you like me and Jose please give us a good rating on the iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and subscribe to us and tell people about us you can find links to all the things we talked about on americantheater.org and go see some theater the fall starting there's so much to see as jose's busy schedule will tell you and if you need recommendations feel free to tweet it tweet at us anytime when i want to say anything to the people jose before we leave bye people bye people and take some friends to the theater because it's more fun that way yep bye bye